It is good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, as we continue to look at the first few verses, the prologue of this letter to the Hebrews. As you're finding the passage, just by way of reminder from last Lord's Day, if you were with us, we, we mentioned that this is an exhortation written to a people to, to remind them to hold fast to their confidence in Jesus. And as we're going to see this morning, this type of endurance, this ability to, to persevere in the faith can only come from a deepened grasp of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, as we've seen in this passage, God has spoken his final, finest word. So now hear from the word of God. I'm going to actually read the first four verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hear the word of God. The recipients of this letter, it seems, have not yet clearly comprehended or fully understand the end, the effect and the advantages of the coming of the Son. In many ways, they were still laying hold of the shadows of the old when the substance was here. And so the writer to the Hebrews is going to work through 13 chapters in this letter of, of encouraging, exhorting them to see Jesus for who he is. He is better. He is superior. He is worthy of our full attention. What he begins in these first opening verses is that God has nothing in reserve. No further revelation to make. The whole revelation and manifestation of God is now found in his Son. He alone reveals the Father's heart. It is not only that Christ delivered God's message, but he himself was and is God's message. And so these first four verses, we're looking at primarily the the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, but but I actually want you to make note of this. The first four verses is actually just one long sentence. 
72 words used in the original language to expound upon this point. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But please hear me, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. What we have in these last days is the revelation of God coming to us through the incarnate Son of God. Here's a question. What qualifies the Son to reveal the Father fully or finally? What, what qualifies Him? And the author is going to, in these verses, show us a sevenfold description of the Son in order to demonstrate His supreme excellency, His worthiness. And so we're going to spend the next few moments looking at what we find about the Son in these few verses. The Son is capable of all of this because of what the Father has done through him. We see that in these verses. Who he is and what he does and what he has done. So presently what he's doing and what he has already accomplished. So God the Father, we read in, in, in this passage before us, has done two things through the Son. And this is going to be hugely important in understanding why the Son is the last word. Why all that God has spoken in the past comes to culmination in the Son. So first, the Father appointed the Son, the heir of all things. Now, if you're working through this passage, there are times when we're entering into God become flesh and living amongst us, the incarnate Son. At other times, the author's like pulling back and showing us the pre-existent Son, the eternal Son, who has always been with the Father and the Spirit. So the Son is and always has been with the Father and the Spirit, creator and owner of all things. But there was an appointed time when the Messiah to come was born of the flesh. And in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, Christ fulfilled what we read, for example, in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, when we hear the term son, this is a different category than God having many sons. We are adopted as sons of the Most High, sons and daughters of the King. But here he is talking about one son. The infinite Father has only one eternal Son, and this Son is the heir of all things. Now, for most of us, at some point in our lives, we will have a family member pass away, die, and we will inherit something. They will leave us something. 
For some of us, it probably won't be a whole lot. For others, it may be a large portion of an inheritance. But in order for that to take place, that transaction, so to speak, someone must die in order for there to be an heir to inherit what has been promised to them. In God's amazing plan of redemption, the son dies in order to be the heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him, the inheritance that was to be his, was given to him when he laid down his life for the sheep. Now, when we think of being the heir of all things, again, the son, the only son is in a different category, and this inheritance, while we can kind of scratch at what being the heir of, of things it would be like, when we think about the son, this is full authority invested in him. The writer appeals to Christ's headship in saying that he is the heir of all things. He governs all things in heaven and on earth. The, the term heir of all things, we want to hear, I want you to hear dominion and absolute. There is nothing left outside of this inheritance for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, I think, helps us when he emphasizes in the first chapter in two different places this uniting all things in him. So here from the Apostle Paul, verse, verse 9 first, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The son is the heir of all things. So what this means for us, if you are going to know the father, it will be through his son. If you are going to have any dealings with the Father, it is going to be through the one who has been invested all things. It is through the Son. If Christ is the head, if he truly is the, the heir of all things, then surely his revelation trumps everything before. How does it affect you to hear this about the Son? That everything that you are and everything that you own belongs to Jesus. Should that not greatly transform how we make use of what we've been given? Our time, our resources, our possessions, our relationships, our opportunities, the influence that you may have been given the Father has appointed Jesus 
the heir of all things. The second thing the Father did through the Son is that the Father, through the Son, we're told, created the world. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, in driving home the preeminence of Christ, tells us this in, chapter, in, in verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. As we're looking at these opening verses of Hebrews, I want you to make note of the the inscrutable link between creation and redemption. The one who created is the one who redeemed. And I would just submit to you this morning that your doctrine of creation matters. Not just what we hear about in the gospel and what Christ has accomplished, but the full breadth of God's revelation to us, beginning in creation, it matters. This is the Son's world. In John 1, we see that there is one agent, one agent who created and one agent who redeems. Very familiar to us, but just hear from God's word again what the Father has accomplished through his Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In this particular verse that we have in Hebrews chapter 1, the Greek word for world is actually literally translated ages. Now, if you think about what the author is driving at here, he, he begins long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's now telling us that God the Father through the Son created the world, created the ages. And I think using that word in particular helps us set the Son in his due place, in his rightful place of permanence where everything else is transient. Fix your eyes on what is permanent, not what is temporal. So the ages are wearing out through successive periods of time. But the Son, He is the rock that will stand forever. It is through Him that the Father created everything, created the world. And not just did he assemble parts that were already there, but we believe from God's word it was ex nihilo, out of nothing. Every piece of raw material, every tiny particle, every large piece of material, seen or unseen, he created it. I think this is what Paul had in mind in Romans 11.36 when he declared, For from him... And through him and to him are all things. If that is true, then surely what God has spoken through him 
is greater than the prophets of old. Think with me for a moment. He who created all things is also the one who redeems sinners. He is the only one able to create out of nothing something. How much more, think about this, if you are thinking, man, if you knew the life that I have lived, the one who created the ages, the, the world, is able to create in me and in you a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. If, if you are in need of a new creation, there is one who is able, more than able. The Father, through the Son, created the world. And then we see in our passage two descriptions of who the Son is. Really, really thinking about His being. He, we are told, is the radiance of the glory of God. I want to use the help of Charles Spurgeon here, who was an, a master orator and writer. This is what he says, Shade your eyes, for you cannot look upon this wondrous sight without being dazzled by it. Some commentators say, and it is not an inappropriate analogy, though we must not push any analogy too far, that as light is to the sun, so Jesus is to the glory of God. He is the brightness of that glory. That is to say, there is not any glory in God, but what is also in Christ. And when that glory reaches its climax, when God, the ever-glorious, is most glorious, that greatest glory is in Christ. Oh, this wondrous word of God, the very climax of the Godhead, the gathering up of every blessed attribute in all its infinite glory. You shall find all this in the person of the God-man Christ Jesus. Whatever God is, Christ is. The very likeness of God, the very Godhead of Godhead, the very deity of deity is in Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Apart from Christ, apart from the Son, the brightness of God's glory could not be perceived by us. We praise God that in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We are getting into some deep, weighty theology here. The difference between getting the identity of Christ almost right and right is infinite. To get this wrong, who the Son is, is to get everything wrong. If you get this wrong, you will begin to look for alternatives. 
Additives to complete your personal needs and what would be sufficient. And the writer to the Hebrews is helping them see the glorious Christ for who he is. He is better. Misunderstandings are being corrected here in these verses. Jesus isn't like God. Those of us who have sons may say, you know, my son is like me in in this way or that way. This is not what the, the writer to the Hebrews is describing about the eternal son of God become flesh. The son is the exact imprint of the father's nature. So this exact imprint, think about a coin being replicated by being stamped and pressed upon it, the exact image that's being stamped upon it. That, that's what's being conveyed here. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. A.W. Pink also helps us. The Old, Old Testament saints did not perfectly express God, nor, nor can angels, for they are but finite creatures, but Christ... Being himself God, he could, and he did. All that God is in his nature and character is expressed and manifested absolutely and perfectly by the incarnate Son. I pray that we would be amazed as we think about the eternal Son of God being born a babe. The amazement of the incarnation. How is it that the eternal son who created the world should hide himself in frail humanity? The omnipotent one would conceal himself in a servant's form. But this is is the amazement of the incarnation. The invisible actually becomes visible. So in Colossians 2.9, this is what we're told. For in him, in the Son, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Through these two descriptions of who the Son is, the radiance and the exact imprint, the author, the writer of Hebrews, captures Jesus' own claim in John's Gospel Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. And then we are told, He, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is what He is doing. Christ upholds. He bears, he sustains all things in existence. This is what, again, Colossians chapter 1 tells or means when the Apostle Paul says that in him all things hold together. What I want to emphasize here is this is not a stagnant um, reality. This is active. He who upholds the universe by the word of his power, carries along everything to its appointed goal or end. The Son organizes, orchestrates, and orders the universe so that 
it, all things will be accomplished, will achieve what God's, cre- what, what God's uh, goal is for it. And also just note here, universe is actually translated probably more correctly, all things. So he upholds all things by the word of his power. Why I, why I think that's important to note is because I want you to hear how exhaustive it is in scope. Everything, whether important or just the mundane things, it is all being upheld and carried along by the eternal Son of God to its appointed goal. So this description of Jesus upholding, bearing, sustaining all things by the word of his power underscores for us the ability for him to sustain his people who are called to do hard things, who are called to endure hard things. If the word of his power upholds the earth and heaven, surely that same word can uphold you. When you are weak, when you are trembling, when you don't feel like you can even take the next step, the Son upholds all things by the word of his power. The same insight is celebrated in a well-known African-American spiritual. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got the tiny little babies in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. That is just echoing the truth that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when we hear our president mention that Putin, by using nuclear weapons, could bring about Armageddon, Please remember, Christ is the one in control of all things. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If the Son ever ceased to will the universe to remain, then the universe would cease to exist. The power to create, the power to preserve, the power to control, and the power to bring everything to an end is in the hands of the Son. The one who did not have a place to lay his head while he was here on this earth is now the rightful possessor of all things. And now looking at what he has done. We just saw what he is doing, what he has done. This Son in whom the Father has spoken to us why he is better, why we listen to him. He made purification for sins. The single greatest threat to the well-being of our souls and for all eternity is our sin. He the eternal Son of God, who was born a babe, the incarnate Son, made 
purifications for our sins. This is past tense. This is something that he accomplished. Everything that defiles or makes us unclean before an infinitely holy God, Christ has overcome and removed by the shedding of his blood. The barrier that your sin and my sin has created between us and God has been removed by the Son. If you have repented and believed in him and received him by faith, please hear this, it's over. In the best sense possible, all your sin, past, present, and future, has been purified for the, by the once-for-all sacrifices of the Son on the cross. So, brothers and sisters, if the Son has made an end of it, what more can there be of us or of it um, that we should be concerned about? Psalm 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He has made purification for our sins. I want to let the writer of Hebrews ground this truth in passages that, Lord willing, we will get to later. In chapter 7, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Then in chapter 9, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have, he would have, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And what did the son do once this task was complete? In chapter 10, verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so we see in our passage the seventh truth, glorious truth of the, of the Son. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is significant about what seems apparently a simple declaration that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? The focus I see in this introduction to Hebrews is that after making purification... Jesus sat down at the right hand of God as a sign of the finality and the certainty of his work on Calvary's cross. So let me explain this just briefly. Every priest in the Old Testament stood daily at his service. There, there were no chairs in order for them to stop, sit, and rest 
this standing represented that there is activity to be done. They made the same sacrifices repeatedly, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. For by this single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That work that needed to be continually done by the priests, it was completed and Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is our great high priest. And then also Christ at the right hand of God also signifies the eternal certainty of his reward. Sitting down, it is finished. When he cried that out on the cross, he accomplished what the Father had sent him to do. That means all that he purchased with his blood will be his. That's the sitting down. It has been completed at the right hand of the Father. He loved the church and gave himself for her. That means those whom are his will come to him. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they listen and they come. He has redeemed his loved ones from among men and he shall have all those whom he purchased. What more do we need than what God has declared and manifested through his son? All that God has to say to us is found in Christ. All of his thoughts, counsels, promises, gifts are to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage that we've looked at today, like so many other throughout this letter to the Hebrews, tells us why Jesus is better. It gives us reasons why he is glorious, why he is the culmination of all that was promised, all the shadows we see the substance in the Lord Jesus. All the promises, we find fulfillment in Christ and Christ alone. He is the heir of all things. Through him, all things were created. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the glorious Son. Let us pray. Father, like the old hymn says, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Father, we are so thankful for your word the Word, the Son. We pray, Father, that all that was rehearsed this morning, looked at, the Holy Spirit would apply to our minds and our hearts. Father, those who are in Christ, may we be built up this morning by who it is that has redeemed us, who it is that cares for us and intercedes for us, even right now at your right hand. 
And for those outside of Christ, may this be the day where they have eyes to see the glory of Christ, eyes to see the kingdom of God, their great need of a Savior, and the one who has spoken the last word, who has come to redeem sinners. Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted in this place, and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.